Okay, I said I was going to be succinct last night and I wasn't. <laughs> I'll try again tonight. Honestly, I'll try to do better each night. <clears throat> I have a kind of provisional title, which uh, I always like to think of titles. I think I might have mentioned to you before you know, giving a talk because it helps in, then orient my thoughts around it. And tonight, really, I suppose the principal title I had called, you know, for this particular evening talk was how do you want to live your lives and I think uh, this is a very pertinent question because it's one that um, nearly all of us in some senses have to ask ourselves at some point in time which is how do we want to live our lives how do we want to go on how do we want to get through this world Um, how do we want to get through life in general what motivates us to start practicing, what start motivate, motivates us to come to a retreat centre like this, for example, and to engage in the practices you've been doing for you know, the last seven days or so. Yeah, so it's a very, very pertinent question. It's a very, very real question, I think, for all of us, because uh, so much hangs on it. One element, perhaps, that brings most people to the path for want of a better term, is, of course, distress in your own life. Now, that can be very prominent in the sense of sometimes the tragic, but it can also be that that undercurrent that I've spoken about. And I suppose if I'm going to be doing anything tonight, it's trying to pull together some of the threads that I've spoken about over the week so far and put them in a very practical sense, because we've talked a lot of kind of almost, well, I say theoretical, but I don't actually like the word theoretical, because everything is practical, but this is trying to put it into a much, much more practical, um, obvious way that applies to our lives. So many things might bring us to the path, to practising the way of mindfulness, the way of insight, what we've been doing this week, and as I indicated, some of them might be tragic, but more often than not, I think it's this simple sense that the Buddha highlights so strongly of the sense of dissatisfaction, of the sense of unsatisfactoriness, the sense of also seeing others floundering around also. I don't know if it ever struck you, people floundering around in their lives, trying to create some sort of sense out of it. But, of course, if probably looked from their perspective, you too are floundering as well in trying to make some kind of sense out of ordinary life. And I think this is the very idea that brought the Buddha to the path himself. And I just want to give you a small quotation down to something I translated quite recently. Um, and it's just a little snippet. Um, and it comes out of a text which I actually quoted from the other morning, which is uh, the one that has the Metta Sutta in it, the Sutta on loving kindness. Uh, but here the Buddha is talking about really, really what uh, got him motivated. And perhaps something similar is involved with ourselves. Fear comes to one who embraces violence. Look at people quarrelling. Let me tell you of the strong agitation that I felt seeing people struggling like fish in shallow water with enmity towards one another. I became fearful. Wanting a safe place to shelter, I saw that the world lacked substance and there was not one part of it that was changeless. 
Seeing people trapped in mutual enmity, I grew dissatisfied. Then I saw buried in their hearts a barb that was difficult to perceive. It is this barb that impels people to run in all directions. Once it's pulled out, the running ceases, as does the inevitable exhaustion that accompanies it. Um, Now, obviously that's couched in very ancient language, but I think there's something very real and very modern about that as well. In what is, in some senses, propelling us, compelling us, perhaps is even a better word, we're under a compulsion to behave in certain ways. The dissatisfaction that arises, that drives us in all sorts of directions, under the powerful sway of something we've talked quite a lot about, under the powerful sway of craving, craving to avoid, craving to have, pushing and pulling us in all sorts of directions, so that there becomes a degree of aimlessness towards, you know, in life. Life becomes fairly aimless. Um, Some of the things we mentioned last night, so hence the reason for the having to amuse ourselves, having to entertain ourselves, you know, And one of the things we don't want to let happen, and I might add this, is for the practice itself to become another form of entertainment. Because that can so easily happen. I always remember Krishnamurti years ago, when I think it was one of the last talks he ever gave in England. Most most of you have probably heard of Krishnamurti, the uh, Indian thinker. He used to come to Hampshire every year and give talks. And I remember him sitting there in front of an audience of about, must have been four or five hundred people. And he looked across at them and he says... Am I entertaining you? <laughs> he got rather cynical in his old age. <laughs> but I understand what he means in the sense that the path itself, and I use the path as a word guardedly, and perhaps I'll explore this a little bit with you, that the path itself doesn't become entertainment. That if we are to stop ourselves from running in all of these directions, then in a sense, and I'm going to put this in perhaps the most pejorative way I can possibly think, then the path is not a hobby. (laughs) It's not something we do um, to distract ourselves, to amuse ourselves, to add a little bit of, I don't know, frisson or titillation in our lives. Um, Probably, as you've gathered, it's much harder work than that. (laughs) having been here for this uh, particular week. <clears throat> so, But it's important to see it somehow, and I will go on to speak about this on the very last morning, because it's important that we integrate the practice and this way of life, you know, this particular form, into our lives. Otherwise, it always remains on the edge. It always remains something which isn't central to it. Now, of course, what the Buddha was speaking about is very much something that was central to your meaning and value of being in this world and moving through this world. The path and everything that's entailed by the notion of a path was absolutely central um, to what he was teaching and what he was teaching to his disciples, um, to those who were close to him here. And it was about removing the very, very causes of dissatisfaction, the very, very motivating forces 
that drive us in all of the directions which we happen to end up in running. And I like in that particular quotation, he saw people running in all directions, ceaselessly. Actually, let's include ourselves in that. Because that's what we do as well. We run ceaselessly in all directions, attempting to find something. Attempting to make ourselves whole and real in some way. Um, To substantiate ourselves in our existence in this world. Often perhaps we feel, and I'm throwing some of this out as questions as much as as anything else, often we feel so insubstantial, as if there's nothing literally holding us down to this earth, to this ground which we live on. Um, We are very, very, in some senses, um, light in the way that we are. And so we attempt to do this by all sorts of things. All of the materialism, all of the tending to try and substantiate ourselves through an ego, through building an I into ourselves to which we hold very, very strongly, is becoming the centre of all of our activities. Now, there's a very, another very graphic image. I can't remember. It seems, seems such a long week, hasn't it? <laughs> There's a very graphic image that the Buddha gives of this notion of the eye. He says the eye is like a post to which a dog is tethered. And all it done, does is run round and round in circles round the post. Um, that is the eye that we have. That we run round and round in circles around this particular post as if we are tethered to it. So the ego is something which binds us and ties us down to particular forms and ways of thinking and ways of behaviour. Many of the things I've mentioned over the other talks in the evening. It also is that which blocks relationship. And this is going to be one of the primary themes. It blocks relationship because it's the great obfuscating thing that stops us from seeing others. for actually engaging with others. It's um, something Iris Murdoch referred to as the great fat restless ego that sits there blocking your vision. It sits there plump in the middle. So in fact, what do you see? I see me. (laughs) And if I look a bit further, I see me again. (laughs) And if I look a little bit further, I see me yet again. I joke about this, but it's very serious in the sense that we're always, no matter wherever we go, there we are. <laughs> you know, it's always me. Um, so it's basically me first, me second, me third, me fourth. You might get a look in somewhere along the line. <laughs> I'm being cynical about this to deliberately make a point, which is the ego blocks any real relationship that we can have with an other. Um, It cuts us off so much from the other that there can be no real communication even from the other, let alone the arising of genuine love and genuine compassion which have to arise in, I don't know, in the open, in something which is far more spacious 
than the ego can ever provide for it. So what we end up with um, in a lot of relationships, and I don't even mean particularly close personal relationships, but even just our general relationships with others, is I almost feel like we're being trapped in, I don't know, the cast of a Harold Pinter play. Um, if you've ever been and you know, watched Harold Pinter plays, you find that nobody talks to each other. Yeah. There's constant miscommunication going on in them. Um, as being very indicative of the human state, that hardly any of us actually really communicate with each other because we never get through each other's egos. This was graphically brought home to me quite a number of years ago, actually. It's probably too long to remember now, but I saw a cartoon. Sometimes, sometimes cartoons really sum up things, don't they? They really encapsulate things very, in a very amusing fashion. And this was about um, interpersonal relations, between the sexes, um, male and female, here. And it was a couple sitting over a table. It was obviously a dinner table because it had a bottle of wine in the middle and a candle and all the usual accoutrements that go with it. And um, he was leaning across the table and across, above every little bubble in his head, above his head, um, for about probably ten little squares of the cartoon, is just going, me. <laughs> me <laughs> me <laughs> and it goes on like this for about as I say about ten squares then he's obviously finished saying what he has to say and he leans back in his chair and the lady who's illustrated in the cartoon leans across the table and above the bubble in her head above her head comes the little word me <laughs> And he leans back in his chair and he goes, Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Or, um, actually, this one, this one actually came from when I was, used to be director of Sharpen College, which is quite close to here. And we had a long course here. And there was um, um, somebody from New York then. He said, this was a typical New York phrase. He said, that's enough about me. What do you think about me? <laughs> 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 I think you're getting the impression. <laughs> this is about egotism um, and the way that egotism blocks any, any genuine openness to the other, to be responsive to the other. Now, as you very well know, that Buddhism and the Buddhist path in general make great virtues, not just out of insight and wisdom and all of these much more, I suppose, elements which get us to perceive reality. However, if the path was just about that, about wisdom and understanding and insight, and that it would be a very, very cold path. I think it would be a very clinical path. One of the things, as you know, very much probably ad nauseum now, is me trying to tell you to soften, to actually soften to the... Um, stuff that's arising in your meditation, to befriend it, to even, you know, to love it, to be kind to it, no matter what it is, whether it's, you know, your, your monsters, your demons, or just stuff that's coming up, but to befriend it. This is the softening process, and it can't happen unless we begin to open. More so is it important when it becomes in relation to others, 
So much so that the word compassion, and I hesitate to do etymologies with you, but I've done a few, so I might as well do this one. Um, but the word compassion, the word in, in Sanskrit and Pali is karuna. Um, it's a very powerful word in, in these languages. But the word karuna actually derives from a root in Sanskrit, um, which means to turn outwards. So the first movement of compassion is to turn away from yourself, to turn away from your own neuroses, literally to see an other. Remember what I was saying about the ego, when the ego is present, when it's omnipresent, as it often is in our relationships, it blocks, it obfuscates our view. So, so literally we can't see round it. We can't begin to perceive the other. Um, and the same is true with love as well, Maitri. Maitri has a degree of stickiness to it which makes us adhere to the other. I think it was probably on the first night I described how all of the unwholesome qualities of mind which are described are that which drive you away from others, you know, push you apart, whereas Karuna... <laughs> and Maitre or Metta actually bring us close, actually make us stick to others, but without this sense of self being omnipresent within it. So in other words, to really be with others, you've got to somehow get out of your head, get out of your own neurotic, egotistical deliberations about the way that you are in this world. This is extremely important if we're talking about ways of being in the world because we have a choice. We have a choice of being alienated and fragmented and cut off. And one of the things we live in increasingly burgeoning city complexes and conurbations where people are beginning to feel lonelier and lonelier and lonelier amongst millions of people. Um, There was a quote I remember, I can't remember what film it came from, and somebody says, do you ever feel lonely? And the person responds, only when I'm among other people. So loneliness is a big, big part. And actually loneliness existentially tells us something, doesn't it? It really speaks something existentially. If we feel lonely, in a sense it speaks to us existentially that we mean that we're meant to be with others in our lives. We're meant to, in some ways, share our lives. And I don't necessarily mean in close, intimate couple-type relationships, but to share our lives with others, to have this kind of sharing way of moving through life. Otherwise, we simply feel alienated in this world, not at home. Part of the dissatisfaction often is not feeling at home. Um, lovely German word, unheimlich, you know, not feeling right, you know, feeling the uncanny, and not feeling at home in this world. Now, the Buddha was very, very much, as we know, into trying to diagnose the problem, trying to get us to see a sane way of living that wasn't dependent on the ego, that wasn't dependent on craving, 
that wasn't dependent on illusion, both individually and shared. Because illusions can be shared. Culturally, we can share illusions about certainty, about you know, religious systems have shared illusions about what is the end result, say, post-mortem, after death. The Buddha was very much a realist of bringing us back to those almost insurmountable, absolute existential facts of impermanence and, of course, of insubstantiality. You know, what we have called not-self. But really what it means is insubstantiality in the sense that there are no things in this world. There are processes. There is movement. There is change. Almost it could be summed, it could be almost summed up in all things change, all things impermanence. If there's been one thing that's run through the week, hopefully you're hearing this one. Because this is the Buddha's really unique message in trying to push this forward. You know, the question of how do we want to live or how do we live in this world can either deny or affirm that basic truth. And it's not a truth in sense of a proposition that one has to believe in. It's something you can inquire into. And this was very much at the forefront of his message, to inquire into the conditions that we inhabit, the conditions of the world and the conditions that we call ourselves, that are arising and passing away and arising and passing away. And even if we sit on our cushions and only get a tiny glimpse in a week like this, we are seeing it with our own experience and we're not taking it on some kind of authoritarian propositional basis that is a system of belief. The Buddha is not asking us, and I might put this very strongly, the Buddha is not asking us to believe in dukkha. He's not asking us to believe in impermanence. Um, unfortunately, we can also often turn these into almost catechisms of belief, you know, without really having the, the energy to really investigate these things. Now, as you're probably gathering, just from a week like this, some of you who've you know, never been on a retreat of this length before, and some of you who have been on many retreats of this kind of length, but it requires energy. To actually sustain, it requires diligence to actually sustain this inquiry over a long period of time. Not just of ten days, but over a whole lifetime. Now that might sound, oh God, what an uphill struggle. It sounds like Sisyphus. <laughs> Doesn't it? Here he is pushing the boulder up the, up the hill. It's not like that. What I would actually say and again I will reiterate this on Saturday, that this is actually a joyous process. It might not seem it sometimes. <laughs> but it is actually a joyous process in the sense that it brings things to life. Aspects of experience which are often hidden from us, dimensions of meaning which are not accessible to us, become accessible and unhidden.
when we begin to practice in this way. It's almost like, and I'm going to use a, a metaphor here or simile perhaps, it's like um, turning something from monochrome into colour. You know, our lives can appear to be tremendously monochromatic in the sense that it just seems to be a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, anybody ever felt like that? Life just seems to chunter on and then you know, one thing comes after another and it almost seems to be, oh God, what's going to happen next? What's the inevitable thing that's going to happen next to me? And I've given reasons and mechanisms that the Buddha has outlined as to why that happens psychologically. The path, you know, the, the laying down of the conditions of, of, um, of, of dependent origination and the way that dependent origination is set in motion you know, through our craving because that's the first thing that we really, really understand and really know. So the, we understand we can understand a mechanism for that, but um, even just beginning to hear that mechanism helps us to understand this sense of almost claustrophobia that we can have about our lives. As a result, often of the patternings of our lives, the deep habituations that grow up at such an early stage in our development. In a sense, we cease to grow often at a very early stage. Um, I'm not quite as cynical as Benjamin Franklin, but Benjamin Franklin said this. He said, most people are dead by the age of 25. They're just not buried till 70. It's a very cynical statement, but I understand partially what he means in the sense that we close down possibilities for ourselves at a very early age. You know, whether it's 25 or not is irrespective. You know, it's, it's, it's beside the point. But we close down options and possibilities for ourselves in the ways that we live. Now, actually, what the path is doing, and adherence to the path, and it sounds terribly, again, claustrophobic, doesn't it? A path. I want to actually widen it out and say a way of being. You know? Actually, a way is far better than a path. A path sounds like a straight line as if it's a route march from you know, unawakening to awakening. <laughs> you know, it's not like that at all. A way is much more meandering. You know, sometimes we lose our way and come back and find our way again. If you, like myself, enjoy cross-country walking, you will know this. Sometimes you lose yourself and you suddenly find you're back on the way having lost yourself. You, know, you suddenly rediscovered that way again that you were on. And so the way itself, in some, way, in some senses, is rather meandering. It moves into mistakes and out of mistakes and coming back again. And it's a learning process that we have. And it's a joyful process as well. Not to say it isn't serious, but it has joy within it. And I want to emphasize that, the joyful aspect of the practice, because so much time, and probably I've done it this week as well, spent... So much time is spent talking about the miserable dimensions of our lives. However, there are joyful aspects and we can build on those joyful aspects when we begin to practice. One of the components of our makeup, according to the texts of early Buddhism and early Buddhist psychology, is joy. It's part and parcel 
of the wholesome factors that we have in our mind. All too often, of course, when we start to practice on the path, it becomes terribly heavy and terribly stodgy, terribly religious. One of the things I would actually like to take out of the whole of the practice of Buddhism is the idea, particularly if you're looking at early Buddhism, is the idea of religion and taking that out of it. Um, Because if anything, and this connects with things I've said before, anything, the Buddhist path is a path of mental transformation and it's a path of ethics. So it's psychological. You could vaguely say, although I don't particularly like the phrase, you could say it is philosophical, but it certainly is ethical. It's a path of ethical mental transformation, primarily. So understanding the nature of our psychology, the nature of the problem, and the nature of the wholesome dimensions of mind as well is very, very important. So understanding that joy is an intrinsic component to our mental makeup is very important. Understanding that compassion and love are fundamental to the wholesome natures of our mind is also important. And stops us over-identifying perhaps with one side, which is the unwholesome, the what's called akusala dimensions of the mind. The question of how we want to be in this world or how we're going to live in this world then from a Buddhist perspective comes, in, comes down in some senses to a diligence and certainly to mindfulness. And perhaps the, if I was putting the two together, the diligence in practicing mindfulness. Um, somebody who teaches here very often, somebody of you will know, um, Christina Feldman, has a wonderful phrase. She says, mindfulness e- is easy. Remembering to do it is difficult. <laughs> yeah. I think it's a great phrase because it actually shows you what goes on. Uh, that Most of the time we're in a state of forgetfulness, not mindfulness. Yeah. The state of forgetfulness leads into us literally going astray. Yeah. Often. Going back into the habit patterns. Going back to those default options of which I've spoken quite a lot about in the preceding days. Going back into the self as a haven and a refuge. Um, We hear this phrase in English, um, which is retreating into ourselves. I think, what a horrible experience. Retreating into ourselves. What a claustrophobic experience being there. I want to give you one more quote, actually, and this is what the Buddha is saying about the notion of ourselves, I, the very I that um, we hold so much store by and want to hold on to desperately, and in fact feels often extremely rattled when it comes on something like a retreat. It has moments of rebelliousness, um, particularly on retreat, when it goes, sod it, I'll do everything that we're not supposed to do. (laughs) I'm sure many of you have had that feeling over this week, of wanting to transgress. It's a lovely word, isn't it? (laughs) You know, it's it's the eye under attack. 
It's the ego under attack, wishing to fight back. Um, because it knows it's actually a very, very vulnerable and very fragile aspect of our psyche. Um, I'm personifying it here just to make a point. But here's what the, the Buddha says about the notion of the eye, and it comes from the Sangyutta Nikaya, which is the connected discourses of the Buddha. Mara, by the way, is death. It's a figure which is personified in Buddhism as a figure who whispers in the Buddha's ear continuously. And we all have Mara sitting on our shoulder. Um, Mara also can be the ego or the self. Mara sits on our shoulder going to, saying things to us like, go on, you know it's okay, just, just have one. <laughs> Again, the nervous laughter makes me sound like it's familiar, but it sits there whispering these things into your ear. You know, and uh, Mara is this figure. <clears throat> he who imagines is bound by Mara. He does not imagine, and imagine here means fantasize, you know, getting involved in fantasy. We all, in some senses, from the Buddha's point of view, live fantastical lives, very little bearing on reality most of the time. We're off way in cloud cuckoo land a lot of the time. Um, what we do has very little relevance to what is actually going on at all. Um, and this is the idea, of course, coming back to something I said the other night, that the world is the world that we create for ourselves out of our fantasies. The unfortunate thing is we don't see is that um, our fantasies are often pretty miserable. You know, the fantasies that we have, the stories and narratives that we inhabit. Um, the author, Jeanette Winterson, has a wonderful start to one of her books. I can't remember exactly which book it is. I think it's Sexing the Cherry, but I'm not sure. Uh, when she says, I wake up in the morning and I ask myself the question, which story shall I tell myself? The one about the happy childhood or the one about the unhappy childhood? Yeah. Because in a sense, we're constantly deciding between fantastical stories, the narratives that we inhabit, the narratives that we're entrapped by often. And so these are what the Buddha is meaning when he says, one who imagines is bound by Mara, because Mara is whispering there to you. It's not, other, not anything else other than your own minds, you know, your own mind, your own ego talking to yourself. He who does not imagine, he who does not fantasize, is freed from Mara. I am. This is an imagining. I shall not be. This is an imagining. This I am. That is an imagining. I shall be. This is an imagining. I shall not be. This is an imagining. Embodied shall I be. Formless shall I be. I shall be conscious. I shall be unconscious. Neither conscious or unconscious shall I be. This imagining is a disease. Imagining is an abscess. Imagining, and this relates to the previous quote I gave you, imagining is a barb. I am is an agitation. I am is a palpitation. I am is a delirium. I am is finally a conceit. And that's what the Buddha has to says, say about I am. You know? And being Buddhism, there are three forms of conceit. <laughs> 
I couldn't, get a, couldn't let you get away tonight without at least one list. <laughs> and the list here for a conceit, and the conceit is tied to this notion of I am. Um, and actually, there is, a, again, another list. I'm not going to give you the list tonight. But there is a list which is called the fetters, that which binders. They're called sangyojana, that which tires to repeated existence. In other words, to circular existence again and again. The path to awakening is conceived of as a gradual diminishment of these fetters. You know, they're gradual relinquishing of the fetters. One of the last to go, one of the, th- the, the third, actually, from last, is conceit. Because conceit is always bound to the notion of I am here. And this is how conceit goes. I am better. I am worse than. I am the same as. That's conceit. So, I am better. The conceit of arrogance. You know, feeling greater, lording it over others in some way. You know, stressing your superiority. I am worse than. You know, I can think of many quite comical instances of I am worse than. Um, the chief one, some of you might know in particular, is a Monty Python sketch, where they're all sitting around discussing what terrible childhoods they had. Yeah. You, know, you should think yourself lucky. We didn't even have house. <laughs> yeah. Stand by bin yard. <laughs> You know, and it goes on like this, all trying to outdo each other in this orchestrated sense of misery about what, what kind of childhoods they had. <laughs> uh, which is the I am worse than. And we can hear ourselves doing that, you know, um, when somebody says they're not feeling well, well, actually, I've got a terrible headache as well. <laughs> it's always, in some sense, a, again, a reassertion of egotism. Then, of course, there is what I call the conceit of mediocrity, which is trying to put everything and everybody on the same level, um, in the sense of, well, here's somebody who's supposed to be, I don't know, a teacher or something, and they've just dropped their salad all over the floor. Just shows they're no different from us, is it? You know, that's the conceit of trying to put everybody in the same place as you. So what is involved in that, of course, in the conceit here that's being spoken of, is everybody is put in the same place you know, by an I. In the conceit of mediocrity, the I lords it. In the conceit of being worse than, I'm still lording it because I'm actually worse off than you are. As well. So again, it comes back to I first, I second, I third. Yeah. Where do you get the look in? Where does the other, where does reality impinge when there is that I? That becomes the question. So coming back to the original in sense title question that I have, how do you want to live or how do I want to live? Perhaps it's with that sense of the diminishment of that central authority. 
speaking everything to me, of beginning to diminish this sense of egotism that blocks me off, doesn't allow love, doesn't actually allow compassion, doesn't allow real relationship. Now, I'm not being cynical enough to say there are no expressions of love and compassion and generosity and things like that, because these are all present. But they're usually tied to our sense of self. Often, the other person we're with is tied to our sense of self, in that they're not a genuine other who's allowed to be who they are, to be released into themselves, in some senses. They are tied for being something for me. So the other person actually is for me. When that kind of love, which is based on a for me, turns out that that person doesn't do the things that I want them to do, i.e. provide me with perhaps security and self-confidence and back up my sense of being in the world and these sorts of things, then it can so easily flip the other way, doesn't it? We see this so often, how so-called love in relationship terms to violent, vitriolic dislike and even hatred in these situations when this person is no longer for me in the ways that I want them to be. Often as well, change is seen as threatening. Well, the last thing you ever want, you to, something, ever want someone to do is change on you, really, is it? You know, it's quite... It's quite unsettling if somebody changes on you, um, particularly if it's a close, you know, somebody very close to you or a partner. You know, for heaven forbid, you're going to change on me. You know, don't do that. You know, um, otherwise, I might not like you anymore. <laughs> I'm joking about this again, but I think a terribly sad manifestation of this is the way that we can often, again, in our egotism, freeze frame the other at a particular point in time, often not long after we have met and grown into relationship, and we hold on to that until desperately, and I'm again using metaphors obviously here, we hold on to that desperately until perhaps the image that we hold and the person don't seem to match any longer that we have. And then something happens like this. And perhaps even after, I don't know, 20, 30 years of a close relationship, marriage even, you've changed. <laughs> In other words, there hasn't been acceptance of change. There's been no seeing of it. There's been no witnessing of it. To move out into genuine relationship, which is, again, I presume for most of us, an important way of how we want to live in this world, to be in relationship, not to be isolated, not to be cut off from others, but to be genuinely involved with others, you know, both in a very personal sense and often just in an ordinary daily sense of those we have to work with, those we come into contact with, then we need to shift away from the central focus of the I am, the centrality of the ego, to open up to any possibility of love, caring, compassion, to open up to any possibility of generosity. And here, generosity does not mean just giving things. 
In fact, that can be the very substitute for caring and actually be a sign of not caring as opposed to caring. The Buddha is talking about a generosity of spirit that's so important that we bring into our relations with others only if the self is diminished or absent there. That the compassion that is being spoken about, this turning outwards, as you can see, literally it's a lovely physical sense of turning outwards, as if we're turned inwards. Um, Rilke, who I mentioned the other night, the poet, in one of his Duino elegies, the eighth Duino elegy, and said human beings are very strange animals. All animals, he says, look out into the open. You know, meaning the ordinary animals that we see, the rabbit, the deer, the whatever. They look out into the open. He said human beings are a strange animal who seem to be turned looking inwards at themselves obsessively. So we obsess. What is that obsession? Again, connecting with something that occurred earlier in the week. It's papancha. It's entanglement. It's being tied to obsessive forms of thought circulating around that post of I am, I am, I am. I think there's one actual thing that's missing out of the Buddha's list here is that I am is a tedium as well. It's tedious just confronting the notion of that ego day in, day out. And particularly when it has deleterious or detrimental effects on our relationships with others. I personally believe, now I'll leave it to you to decide, that this question of how do we want to be, how do we want to live in this world, includes others. as very, very important and very, very significant to our sense of being in this world. That how we want to be in this world also includes letting go of all of the psychology of craving and egotism that are related to it. This is the path, this is the way. Let's go back to the metaphor I used earlier. This is the way that the Buddha is outlining. A gradual diminishment of the claustrophobia of self. Self is a tedium and it's a claustrophobia that we actually inhabit day in, day out. And I don't know if you feel that strongly, you know, I think the more we begin to meditate, the more we begin to have access to the sense of the claustrophobic nature of the self. And how, in fact, we feel brief glimpses, even if they're just momentary, of how we can be liberated. Just that momentary aspect of concentration that even for a brief minute, when that self drops away, It's like, gosh, what a relaxation. What a relief. I'm no longer there. There is no longer this self insinuating itself in every dimension of my experience. So the Buddha's way, in the sense of how do we want to live, is with the diminishment of self with the diminishment of ego. And perhaps that's a better way of looking at it. Self is the word that's actually used, but I think in our modern parlance we would use it as ego. Letting go of that, 
beginning to become closer to others, to move into the possibilities of love, compassion, and genuine relationship. Without that, we are isolated, and we're cut off, and we're extremely lonely, no matter how many people there are around us. Without generosity, of which... We see glimpses, we are diminished in some way. Actually, the ego is also a diminishment of what we can be as a possibility in this world. What the way shows you, and the way of life that's in some senses not advocated, but in some senses laid out for us as being a possibility, it shows us unique possibilities and ways of being which at this moment in time seem almost incomprehensible to us. That we can be in this world without that strong sense of ego dominating every act in which I engage in. Without being there in the sense of love as possessive. Compassion is something I do to others. You know, I'm going to lay my compassion on you. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to lay my generosity on you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And actually, really, what I require is something back in return. Yeah. <coughs> there are no gifts without presents, in other words. Yeah, we want a present back in return. Nothing in the egotistical sense genuinely comes with, generally comes without strings attached. Something being expected in return each time. Now, I don't want to go on in this vein because I think what I'm trying to say actually is perhaps if we answer the question how do we want to live in a very honest fashion, we want to live without all of that stuff. We want to feel that sense of freedom. We want to feel the liberation from habit. Yeah, that tremendous sense of emancipation that we get when we are liberated, even just from a minor habit that we have, that we are you know, addicted to doing, whether it's chocolate or television or sex or whatever, that we feel we have to keep doing it. And, you know, and it is an addiction, not something that is coming about naturally and spontaneously, but it is an addiction, something that we have to have. There is that tremendous sense of emancipation and liberation that comes about. Now, the Buddha is saying, and this is, in a sense, the big sense of awakening, that that can happen across the board, that we can be liberated from from this claustrophobic, extremely stultifying sense of who and what we are in this world by liberating ourselves from that egotism, which is the driving force and the current behind most of what we do and cuts us off from the real possibility, the real possibility of love, kindness, gentleness, caring, generosity and all of that psychology that goes with it. I hope I sold it to you. (laughs) I think I'll rest my case there. For this evening, I'll pick up on some of it tomorrow night on the on the final evening, and try and again pull more of the strings 
together that I've kind of laid out during the week. And so, again, I just want to open it up and see if there are responses and questions and comments, perhaps, about either anything I've said or anything that's gone on during the week. You know, it's up to you. You've got a few minutes. You haven't mentioned it tonight, but it's just a word that's come up a few times. It's already rebirth. Yeah. Um, I just wondered if you could comment on it and what we might understand by um, being reborn. Okay. Rebirth, this is a very old chestnut in the sense of it always comes up in some form or another. <clears throat> What's the most sane way of looking at rebirth? Well, I think going, don't know. I think that's the sanest way of looking at rebirth in the literal sense. Um, I have views on it from my actual study of the text, more, I suppose, as a scholar which feeds into my more practitioner-oriented stuff. And my feeling about it is this, is that the Buddha uses the mechanism of rebirth, which is part of his culture, to describe psychological material. Interestingly, in the canon, and I mean here by this, the early canon, the Pali canon in general, the Buddha explains everything he speaks about. There's literally nothing that he doesn't explain. So if you want to know how some sangsara comes about, he gives you the chain of dependent origination. If you want to know what it means to be a self, then he gives you the skandhas and then breaks it down even finer and finer and finer. Um, giving you an explanatory mechanism for what's involved in this. And he does this across the board, throughout everything he does. When it comes to rebirth, there is a resounding silence on him. He says absolutely nothing at all about it in terms of the mechanism. So it's actually left to later Buddhist scholars, I mean those coming sometimes 300, 400 years after the Buddha's death, to try and invent a mechanism for how literal rebirth could come about. Now, I don't really want to get into that. What I'm far more interested in is how we can see rebirth as something which is operative in our lives now. You know, as I say, in terms of whether there's been past lives and whether there's likely to be future lives, well, in, on the first ha- on, in the first instance, even if there is literal rebirth, it ain't no consolation. <laughs> you know, because... A, it's sangsara, again, that anything is going to be reborn into. So again, it's this repetitive, cyclical stuff happening all over again with a feeling tone of dukkha running through it. It doesn't sound very pleasant, does it? You know, so that's one, on the one hand. On, uh, uh, and there's the second instance, really, B, um, it ain't going to be you that's reborn anyway. Because based on the idea that it's not self, what is going to be reborn is nothing identical. I would content myself with this thought, with the fact if there is literal rebirth and something is reborn as a cockroach in the South American jungle, it's not going to be me. (laughs) 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 So, I mean, what... I don't think, even as a consolatory mechanism, that the idea of rebirth holds out much hope at all um, for any individual. Coupled with the fact there is no explanatory mechanism makes me fall back much, much more on something that occurs within the psychological literature in Buddhism, in the very, very early psychological literature, which is it's seen as a mechanism of moment-to-moment rebirth. 
So in other words, when we were talking about dependent origination and that cycle of dependent origination, each element of that cycle, all 12 links, are carrying over every moment. You know, so in other words, if I don't change the habits, still being driven by ignorance and the craving that results from them and all the other stuff, I'm not going to go through all the 12 links again, um, then we end up in a very similar next moment. And we end up in a very similar next moment if we don't change. You know, however, um, we can, of course, alter that. We can alter it so, in fact, you know, we lessen the dependency on habit patterns. We can lessen our tendency to crave in certain ways. Therefore, the rebirth that we get in the next moment could be actually a lot more positive. Also, I gave it to you um, when I described actually you know, when I was very, very young and was speaking with that Tibetan teacher about the six realms, which are supposed to be the six realms you're possibly reborn into. Well, these are psychological states, and you're reborn into those moment to moment to moment as well. You know, when we look back over our lives, I don't know how many of you would say this, but I certainly would say this. I mean, perhaps I'm just speaking very personally here. I could look back at my very early life and say, well, that was a different lifetime. You know? I could look back, say, even 20 years ago, even, even, by, even in my understanding of Buddhism, for example, as compared with what it is today, and say that was a different lifetime. Now, obviously it isn't, um, but in a sense, that person was a different person then. You know? We probably had a whole load of different habits and different friends and ways of behaving, perhaps, than we do now. Some of them might have carried over, but a lot of them will have been dropped. And so, so we can look at that dispassionately and go, yeah, I was a different person then. Yeah. But, of course, what links it all together is a sense of continuity, who I am today depends on who I was yesterday. Who I was yesterday depends on who I was 10 years ago. Who I was 10 years ago depends on who I was 20 years ago. So there is continuity there as well. So we have to pay attention to what we do because the continuity traits carry over in terms of our existence, and particularly when they're habit patterns and habit traits. So when I, when I try to put across the teaching of rebirth, it's more of what is going on now. You know, how you are next year depends on what you're doing today, actually. Yeah. How you are next week depends on what you're doing today, what you're thinking, what habit patterns are sedimented, what ones are being broken, what ones are changing, what new ones are coming in. And you know, I could go on about that. But it's very much a teaching, I think, that we should come back to this life and its importance to now, not about positive, poss- you know, possible putative future states and positive, you know, possible you know, previous states of existence which were, you know, in other lifetimes, you know, literal other lifetimes. To me, that just personally doesn't resonate. It doesn't also hold much of an incentive, really. Because actually, even if there are future lifetimes and it's not going to be me, whoopee, could care less. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know... Actually, the Buddha says, and this is very interesting, I'll just make this a final point, but the Buddha says, it's actually, if somebody says something like that, you know, it's not going to be me, it doesn't really really matter what I do, 
because it's not going to be me in a future lifetime, it's better to teach self. Because actually, what's really, really important, it actually really connects with what I've been speaking tonight to a certain extent, and certainly the previous night, is that a moral, ethical sense of responsibility is important. And just one final point, which I think is, for me, is almost a decisive factor in the way that I tend to interpret it for myself, is that actually we have to be aware of what we're doing now in the sense that there is, in a way, something which is reborn. But it's not you, and it's not even something in a sense that's vaguely based on your continuity. What it is is all your stuff. You know, all of the actions and deeds that you engage in in this lifetime will ramify through others. You know, through your children, through those that you come into contact with. And let's face it, and this is one of the sad things about the modern world, even our garbage will go on. You know, and they can be, they see this both literally and metaphorically. Our garbage literally goes on all that stuff that isn't biodegradable that we leave around, that, we, that is you know, tossed into the landfill sites or incinerated, um, that is all going on. But all of the garbage of our mental arsivers goes on as well. So if I, for example, abuse somebody, hurt somebody, that will continue. And it might continue for generations. You know, think about that. You know, we just don't know. We don't know how far these things snowball. You know, that again becomes the importance of the teaching of, I think, rebirth, in the sense of be aware that your stuff will go on, hence be mindful about how you're engaging. Hence, try and be as ethical as possible, as possibly as you can. Try and develop love. Try and develop kindness. Try and develop compassion. You know, because actually if I want something to go on, I'd much rather that go on than abuse and violence and, you know, um, yeah, I'll leave it at that, really. Just one there, Katrina at the back and then. Right. That's a very interesting question. I mean, the way I used to describe it when I used to teach this stuff at university was that Buddhism, in a sense, is not a religion, but it has a family resemblance. <laughs> you know, like in, in families, you know, some ears come through and some noses come through. In other words, there's some features come through, but you're not identical to your parents or your grandparents or your uncles or your aunts or anything like that. Well, Buddhism as a tradition, I think, has resemblances in some senses, like the bowing. You know, you'll go into many different religious traditions and you'll find, certainly Hindus, you'll find doing that, you know, and bowing and doing all kinds of rituals. Um, you'll see a lot of other behaviour which looks religious. Even some of the translations we have of terminology, actually, makes it sound very religious. We have um, monks in Buddhism, nuns, uh, monasteries. Um, unfortunately, these are all mistranslated words, 
um, that have come across to us. The actual word that's usually translated as monk means sharer, actually, in the original language. A monastery is just a dwelling place. That is all. Uh, but when it comes back to the specific thing you've asked about, about this, um, in, in relation often to the statue of the Buddha, primarily in relation to the statue of the Buddha, then it's just a term of, it's a sense of respect. That is all it is. It's not worshipping. It's not engaging in uh, petitioning the Buddha for anything. It's literally, and certainly this was the case from the earliest tradition onwards, it was literally a sign of respect for somebody who's done something remarkable. Now, this is a very Eastern gesture. It's a very Eastern gesture. Perhaps, I don't know, we need in the West eventually to develop perhaps other ways of doing it. Personally, I just find it aesthetic. (laughs) You know... His memory. memory. That's what you're paying respect to, his memory. The memory of somebody who's done something which, you know, from the point of view of the tradition, is quite remarkable. You know, who's attained this sense of awakening, really woken up. Realise their, and I'm going to use a term I used the other night, their full human potentiality. You know, they really brought that into being. Now, I personally, and again, this is, I can only say it very, from a personal perspective here, I personally think that's quite remarkable. And, okay, I, I lived in the East for a long time, so it comes very naturally to do this, to, to pay this sense of respect. But that's what I do when I'm doing it. It's just saying, you know, here's somebody who's done something remarkable, and just I don't know how you would show a sense of respect for somebody who did something incredible in, in, in the Western world. There would be very different ways of doing it. But it's not religious in the sense of petitioning or worshipping or doing these things. Now, you will find in the development of later Buddhism very much more ritualistic things where I would actually say it was religious. In its inception, I don't think Buddhism is religious in that sense at all. In fact, as you heard me say this evening, it's a way of life, it's a philosophy, it's a psychology, and it's primarily an ethics about the, the way that you live. It's many, many things. I don't think it's religious. Certainly one of the major features of most religious traditions is missing entirely from it, which is the absence of a creator god. It's not there at all. The Buddha, personally, I feel, has no time for a creator god at all. In fact, he sends up the whole notion um, in the text, in the early text. Um, the Buddha is an atheist, as unpalatable as that might sound to a lot of people, he's not a non-theist. Often people hedge their bets and say he's a non-theist. No, he's not. He's an atheist. He actually has no time for any creator god whatsoever in his system. In fact, I'll give you a little quote just to finish off this the answer to your question, which is when he's asked about a creator god, um, and he says, well, the idea of creator god is something like this. He said, it's a bit like a man falling in love with the most beautiful girl in the world. Only when the person's asked is, you know, do you know where she lives? He goes, no. Do you know what she's called? No. <laughs> do you know her family? No. <laughs> and the Buddha says, well, don't you think that man is rather stupid? <laughs> <laughs> So I don't think he has much time for it. And I don't think he has particularly, interestingly enough, I mean, I do find this 
actually very, very interesting from just a perspective of you know, sort of Buddhist social history of what happened. That the Buddha talks about four clingings which are to be abandoned. And one was the clinging to any rites and rituals at all. Yeah. Particularly in the, right, the idea that rites and rituals could have any efficaciousness, any actual direct relevance to the path. So even if we pay respect to the Buddha like this, it means, in a sense, absolutely nothing other than your own personal expression. That is all. Uh, your own personal expression of respect. Rites and rituals from the perspective of early Buddhism just have no part to play whatsoever. And that's partly because he came from a very highly ritualistic society of which he was trying to overcome. So I hope that's not too long an answer to a short question. <laughs> Thank you. I think, I think it, yes. I think <laughs> for those who are incorrigible, the idea of a, um, a future life as a dog, actually, that's not so bad. Let's think of something far worse. <laughs> a future life as something kind of, you know, like a cockroach, <laughs> might be a disincentive um, to behaving badly. You know, so I think it does have that element, which is kind of the stick and carrot element. You know, trying to encourage you to do good things. I certainly don't think, and this is my own personal belief, I mean, you speak to a lot of traditionalists within, um, you know, Buddhist traditions who will say rebirth is actually something the Buddha taught. I personally don't think it is something he taught. I think it's something he plays with within his own culture because it's such a big part of his own culture. Yeah. yeah. And I think one of the ways he plays with it is a moral ethical Thing, you know, get people to behave if they're not going to study, study as the majority of people are not the psychological nuances that he's really trying to get us to see for some people perhaps just living very ordinary lives <clears throat> as they would be in the Buddhist time and even they do to this day in um, you know, traditional cultures you know, the traditional Tibetan peasant the traditional Thai peasant knows very, very little about Buddhism in the sense of the sorts of things I've even talked with you about this week. They will know virtually nothing of this whatsoever. This is the preserve, and this is why I said last night we are very different in the West, this is usually the preserve of the monastics, you know, those who study and those who practice meditation. Meditation was actually a totally unknown quantity um, in Buddhist cultures for lay people up until the 19th century. Lay people did not practice meditation at all up until the 19th century. It was only with the development of a middle class under colonialism in the 19th century which led to people having enough leisure time to be able to do something like meditation. Everybody else prior to that time was just too busy trying to grow enough food to live. You know, so meditation was a luxury. That's why you entered the order if you really wanted to do it and uh, became a monk or a nun because it gave you the time 
in order to practice that, you know, that thing and to study as well. Yeah. So I think in terms of you know, the ordinary layperson traditionally and even in the 21st century, for the majority of people within traditional cultures, this is very much a, a strong belief and it is a belief simply because it at least makes you behave better or might make you behave better. Yeah. So I, I really agree with you. Yeah. <clears throat> Oh, gosh, that's like how many, how many sort of angels on the head of a pin, really, isn't it? Um, I don't know. I, wouldn't, I would say I've met some very remarkable people. Whether they were awakened, I don't know. I wouldn't want to comment. All I can say is there's been very, very remarkable people, and I've met quite a number of them in a number of traditions here. Awakened people... All I can say about that is that these people who I'm calling remarkable have displayed absolutely stacks of the virtues I've spoken about, such as compassion, kindness, openness, um, generosity above all. I mean, I've had this personally you know, to me with a lot of the teachers I studied with in the East, tremendously generous with their time, tremendously compassionate as well um, in, in their looking after you just actually, looking after you psychologically a lot of the time. Um, and that's what I consider to be remarkable. If that's awakened, well, I call them awakened. You know, I, I think it's probably very close. I don't know. You know I, I, it's not in a sense for me to judge. I, I just don't really want to judge that. But I have met some very, very remarkable people. Um, in my in my course of study, particularly when in the early days when I was in the East for a long time, yeah. so it doesn't answer your question, but it responds to it. So. <clears throat> Any mathematicians out there? <laughs> <laughs> Or sort of one in two hundred lifetimes, yeah, or something. <laughs> I don't, I don't know. I, I think, as far as I'm concerned, again, it's, I can only make a very personal statement about this. Um, the odds are as much as you put into it. I think that's what it's really about. As much effort as you put into it, and as, as central as you make it part of your life. As far as I'm concerned, well, if awake, awakening is a very real possibility, and I will give it my best shot. In this life, pun. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or the lottery tickets. Yeah. Um, but in other words, keep practicing as diligently as can, and keep doing what you can. And I think it's a real possibility. So give it your best shot. Is what I would say. I wouldn't even say that. I mean, I actually think. <clears throat> I think that what has happened in the history of Buddhism is, again, the bar has been set so high that it appears that nobody could possibly make it. Um, in the time of the Buddha, people seemed to be dropping into being awakened like nine pins. <laughs> you know, it was happening all the time. You've only got the Buddha talking to somebody, and the next thing you know, they're awakened. <laughs> 
Yeah. And I actually don't think that's just simply hyperbole. I think what it actually is is the fact that it, it wasn't such a huge uphill struggle as we now possibly see it. And I do think it was very much to do with how much has the self dropped away? Has it really dropped away quite substantially? If it has, then you've actually you know, qualified for, for one of the major fetters having gone, what's called Sakaya Ditti, identity view, holding on to the nature of the self or a view about the self, you know, and so on and so forth with the rest of the so-called fetters, which fetter you here. I think it, it's actually far more probably mundane than we think it is a lot of the time. Um, and I think that's what's happened with, the, with setting the goal too high. It makes, you know, for example, people out you know, sitting out here, and I've done this, we did this, Christina and I did, did this in America, and we said, you know, how many people think it's a real possibility that you can gain awakening? And very few people thought it was a possibility. And I just wonder, if that's the case, why are you practicing? Yeah. At least it's got to be thought of as a possibility for you. And I think it is probably far more da- mundane than we think it is. I think it's worth getting anyway there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, because any, any pro any pun. I don't see there's anything. I don't think there's anything wrong with. Uh, yes, but I don't think there's anything wrong with talking about a goal. And I think again, it's something that's very Western. Um, actually, within Eastern cultures, there's not so much of a problem about it. There's actually quite a lot of talking about goals. You know, the goal of the Bodhisattva, if it's within um, Mahayana Buddhism, the goal of the Arahant, if it's within you know, Theravada Buddhism. Um, I think we've got to at least have the idea of a goal, of the possibility of being awakened, then forget it and just get on and do. Yeah. That's, you know, in a sense, if it's going to be a possibility, well, you know, just not keep on thinking about it. Let's just get on, uh, you know, get on with the practices and doing it. And hereby, I mean by what I mean by practices is the full range of how you are in ordinary life, as well as how you are here in a retreat centre. Yeah. Because that is it. As I've said to you the other night, the real proof of this is when you're in daily life, when you're confronted with somebody, for example, who you don't get on with or who really irritates you, can you be kind? Can you show just that a little bit more kindness? Can you listen to them a little bit more openly than you did without all this kind of stuff clicking in? They said, I just want to flee. Yeah. This is the practice. Yeah, that's what I mean by the practice as well as the sitting on the cushion because all of this stuff is literally that, practice. What you're practicing for is to get outside and do something in ordinary life. You know, if it just remains practice sitting on the cushion, well, it's fairly, I don't know, I was going to use a very crude term, I was going to say it's fairly masturbatory in a sense. You know, it doesn't get anywhere. It's just you know, self-indulgence. You know, what the practice is about is actually getting out there in ordinary life. And I'll speak a lot more about this on Saturday. I won't go on about it now because it's, time is creeping on and perhaps I think we ought to draw a line under it tonight because I think we've gone even further than we did last night. In time. <laughs>